we've come as far as Luke chapter 6. We are in verse 1. Let's read our text together. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He ate, uh, he and those who were with him, uh, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but, anyone but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those with him. And then he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, he entered in the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath, so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he arose, and he stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them all, he said to him, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they may do to Jesus." As the popularity of Jesus continued to increase amongst the laity, amongst the general people, the religious leaders were continuously looking for an opportunity to discredit him before the people, to slow the progression of the reception of his ministry to a halt. As Jesus was now again challenging the religious leaders on their idea of what the Sabbath meant, And specifically, he challenged the restrictions that the Hebrew leaders, the religious leaders, the Jewish leaders put upon the Sabbath, upon the people, as a yoke of burden to them, restricting them from almost every type of activity upon the Sabbath. They believed, the religious leaders believed, that once the Sabbath was kept perfectly, by the Jewish people, it would usher in the entrance of the Messiah. Well, guess who's here? And as Jesus continuously looked for opportunities to cut against the tradition of the Pharisees, he here now is given two examples on two different Sabbaths, which is the seventh day of the Jewish week. It would be a Saturday. The Jewish week went from Sunday to Saturday, Saturday being the last day of the Jewish week, would be the Sabbath day. And if you turn with me to Exodus chapter 20, and hopefully you have your finger there already, you will realize that the Sabbath was one of the most key crucial days to the Jewish people. It was a day that God instructed the Jewish people to keep that day holy unto him. It was a day that God said to the people, I'm giving you six days to work, and then on the seventh day, I just simply want you to rest. For the word Sabbath means to cease. 
It's to cease completely. And God simply set the Sabbath in place so man could rest from their labors and could enjoy Him. That was the whole intention of the Sabbath. However, though, man being man likes to complicate the simplicity of God continuously. God says something so simple, and we like to make it so complex. In fact, it is interesting that, you know, today we have a document that protects our freedoms here in the United States of America. And of course, it's the Constitution that I am referring to. And yet to understand the Constitution, you have to read volumes upon volumes of books written by others trying to explain to us simple folk what the Constitution actually means. And so often individuals will understand the Constitution not for what it actually says, but they'll understand it through the light of all of the additional Uh, aspects that have been placed upon it over the years, over the decades, over the two centuries, and so forth. And therefore, we lose the original understanding of the Constitution, and we run with things that we think are constitutional when they are not. God made it very simple. If you read with me in Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11, He says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. The word holy there means separate, apart from. Keep it as a special day, the Sabbath day. Take six days to work and do everything you need to do. But on the seventh day, I want you to cease from all work. I want you to keep it holy. In six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath, a day of rest, a day of cessation to the Lord your God, and on it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or your sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that was in them, and rested on the seventh day. And therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. And God simply stated that he wanted his people just to rest from their endeavors, their labors. He didn't want them to work themselves to death in all that they had to do. And this, of course, not only includes their household personal responsibilities, uh, you know, taking care of their homes and so forth, but it also meant, you know, their responsibilities in their careers, as employees and individuals who go out and make a living and so forth. He goes, no, I want you to rest. I want you to take one day out of the six, out of the seven, excuse me, and I want you to simply rest. Well, the religious leaders needed to, they had to find something to do. So they went about and they wrote two extremely long volumes of commentary called the Talbot and the Mishnah. And one of the subject matters that they tackle within the Talmud and the Mishnah is to define for the average people like you and I what this word work, or in other translations, burden, actually means. 
Now, we're going to help you because, you know, you personally can't understand what that means to cease from all work and just enjoy the Lord. So let me help you understand what that means. And they began to define that word by adding all different kinds of rules and regulations and traditions upon it. All, of course, were subjective. They didn't have biblical authority. This was simply traditions that they added. In fact, they were called the 39 of 39. There were 39 different points, and each one of those points had 39 separate subpoints that had to be remembered by an individual. Things not to do on the Sabbath. And if you violated one of these things, well, then you could be held accountable for that violation. And as a result, by the time Jesus arrived, the, the people really didn't understand the Sabbath any longer. It was so muddied and distorted by the traditions of the religious Pharisees that they didn't see any value to it whatsoever. And God simply wanted His people to stop what they were doing, enjoy their Him, enjoy their family, and worship and love Him. That's what He wanted on the Sabbath day. Well, of course, the Jewish leaders couldn't leave it at that. For example, one of the restrictions is that to do work would constitute 2,000 steps away from your home. So if you went farther, like 2,001 steps, and of course they all had their Fitbits at that time, they would be in violation of the Sabbath. So what they did is that they found out on one of the other six days what 2,000 steps looked like distance-wise, and they then tied a rope to the center of their home, and they took that rope and put it around their foot, and on the Sabbath day, that rope would be the length of 2,000 steps. So they could only go so far, and then the rope would you know, become taunt, and they would have to stop, and they knew that they had gone far enough. Now, God didn't say anything about that. Women could not look in any type of reflective surface in case they were to find a gray hair and to pluck it would be against the Sabbath. I'm so sorry. However, though, you could also not pick up anything that weighed more than a dried fig. And if you had false teeth that weighed more than a dried fig, you had to wait till the next day to pick them up. They could blow trumpets during the Sabbath day at any particular time, and you would literally have to stop in your tracks no matter where you were. You could not drink a beverage outside of your camp or your residence. However, though, when you did get to your residence, you could not use a vessel to draw water from a well. So you had to make sure you had a certain amount of water available to you. You could eat a dry fig, but not a one that's been recently harvested or plucked off the tree. And the only way you could eat it is to throw it up in the air and to catch it in your mouth. If it fell off of your mouth, you had to wait till the next day to pick it up. 
if you were writing something and you made a mistake in the writing, you could not correct it until the next day. You could not eat an egg from a chicken that laid it on the Sabbath day unless the chicken died after laying that egg. How they came up with that one, I have no idea. Now these are just a select few of the 39 of the 39. And you can see very quickly that it would be very difficult to remember just these hands, this, just this many, let alone all the others, that the religious leader imposed upon the people simply because of Jewish tradition, thinking that once they uh, get the nation of Israel all to act in step and foot, meaning all in the same direction, all uh, applying the same rules, then the Messiah would come. Well, Jesus wasn't going to have anything of this. Now, he totally respected the Sabbath. But he respected the Sabbath given by God in the Old Testament. And so we first discover, as his disciples are walking, and obviously now they've walked more than 2,000 steps, they come through a field, if you notice here with me, on the Sabbath, verse 1, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some of the grain, rubbing them in their hands, But some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Now, let us understand, the Bible clearly tells us in the Old Testament that it was perfectly acceptable to handpick from grain or from grapes and eat a few as you went through someone's field. For Deuteronomy 23.25 states, If you go into your neighbor's uh, standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hands, but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. So if you were hungry and you were walking through the field, you're not going to eat that much to really cause a dent in his particular profits. And so God permitted. You could just take a few for yourself. That's what the disciples were doing. They just were a little bit hungry and they just decided to have a little grain as they were going through it. Oh, but wait a minute. They didn't just pluck it. Oh, no. They, comp- they com- completely committed the unpardonable sin by taking it and rubbing it in their hands to the Jewish people. That was winnowing, separating the grain from the shaft. And then it was baking bread, which was not acceptable on the Sabbath because they were making a meal in their hands. And what are you doing, Jesus? This is ridiculous, you know. They are completely undermining our authority. And that was the real key to it all. Their authority over the people. Because they had become so corrupt and because they had laden the Old Testament with such horrible traditions that eliminated the true meaning of what God desired in and through those passages of the Old Testament people lost a true perspective of God. And as a result, God challenged their traditions to his word in the first coming of Jesus Christ. In fact, Jesus not only challenges their traditions, he challenges their teachings also. When you go through the Sermon on the Mount, 
you discover that Jesus says, you have heard it said, and then he'll quote what is the popular saying at the time, but then he will establish what God truly meant and intended from the very beginning. And so it's very important that you understand that Jesus is not violating God's word. He is rubbing against and completely dis, um, dismissing all of the added traditions that the religious leaders placed upon God's word. They did not have the authority to do such a thing, but they did it anyways. And as a result, the people lost their true understanding of God and what God's intention was for them. What the disciples did was perfectly acceptable to God. They did nothing wrong. So Jesus decides to respond to them, oh, you're so, you're so diligent in your observation of the law. You're so knowledgeable of the Old Testament, are you? Don't you remember 1 Samuel chapter 21? When David and his uh, companions were hungry, they went to the city and they went to the synagogue and the only bread available to them was the showbread that was placed upon uh, an altar before God there in the synagogue. There were 12 loaves representing the 12 tribes of Israel. And because of their hunger, David requested the priest to bring them those loaves so they could have something to eat. And God allowed it. Though David did violate the law, God said, no, the hunger of these men superseded the ceremonial practice of leaving that showbread for God in the temple, or I should say in the small synagogue that they had there in the area that David was. And as a result, the religious leaders were brought to silence. See, God had anointed David king. And David and his men were in the process of rising to that power and authority that God had placed upon him. And God was more concerned about the hunger of David and his men than he was concerned about the ceremonial showbread. Now, let us, be, let us understand, this is a case that God allowed for the ceremonial to be violated for the greater good. But when David was bringing the ark back, if you remember, and as the ark was on a cart, which God specifically prescribed that Levites were only to carry the ark, when the ark was uh, jumbled on the cart due to a rough road, Uzzah went and touched the ark to stabilize it and died immediately. And David was so frustrated by what was happening. He thought he was doing a good thing. But God and the ark were representations of what Jesus would do later. And as a result, the ark was holy before God and could only be handled in the prescribed manner in which God caused, uh, called it to be handled. So what does David do? He stops right there. He's in front of this farmer's home. And he says, that's it, I'm done. And he gives the ark to the farmer. Can you imagine that? Honey, David just dropped off the ark. The what? The ark. Where are we going to put the ark? It's in our living room, honey. What are we going to do with it? I don't know, but we ain't touching it. The last guy who did died. We're not going near that thing. 
And while the ark was at that gentleman's home, do you know the home was blessed by God in so many different ways? And then David went back and he read and discovered that he had made the mistake of handling the ark inappropriately and then brought the Levites back and brought it from his home to the city and rejoiced greatly when the ark came back. The ceremonial wasn't nearly as important to God over the needs of the human being. As David and his men were hungry, the 12 showbreads, that could only be consumed by the priest after a set amount of days, was given to David and God approved of it. And Jesus is saying, as David was God's anointed and God allowed for such a thing to occur, guess what? Notice with me as he, as he reads, he goes, Have you not read? It is a very interesting phrase in the Greek. It is sarcastic in tone, but it's also challenging the... Uh, intellectualism of the religious leaders, what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him, how, they, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to his men with him. First Samuel 21, oh yeah, okay, now I do remember that. Yeah, that's interesting. Now, it's so funny, with the recent archaeological discoveries that we have found, the religious leaders wanted to make exceptions to this because this just didn't ring true in their mind. They, they couldn't understand how God could overstep the ceremonial, which would be completely eliminated in the person of Christ in the new covenant anyway, but would be stepped over the ceremonial for the goodness of the individual. This is why Mark stated it from Jesus that God did not make the man for, uh, for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath for man. Meaning that the attention was man, not the Sabbath. And as a result, they couldn't understand the compassion in which God had upon David. Well, Jesus, of course, in his infinite glory, stated this purposely because he wanted it to proceed and segue into what he was about to say next, and that is this. In verse 5, and he said to him, the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. Guess what? I am God, and the Sabbath is my doing. I was the one who ceased in the creation process on the seventh day. For all things have been created in and through Christ. It was Christ who rested. And since I have established the Sabbath, I can tell you what is lawful to do on the Sabbath. He was claiming to be God. He was saying that he is not just the one that observes the Sabbath, he's the one that gave us the Sabbath. Personally, if I were to proceed into a doctorate, I would write that on the seventh day, God rested and created Lumelnades or Portillo's. The day of rest is one of the most fascinating aspects of the creation process. He saw all that was good. Six days is talked in Genesis and also in Exodus, giving us the understanding that it was six literal days and not six long periods of time. But in each case, the Sabbath, the day of rest, is emphasized as 
giving detail to it and wanting to draw our attention to it. I believe it's because Jesus Christ is going to give us the ultimate rest from all of our work. And that is what is stated in the book of Hebrews, which we'll read in just a moment. But here in verse 5, let us make no uh, assumption about it. Jesus is stating very clearly for all of us that He is the God of the Sabbath. Tom Constable wrote in his commentary, he said, Jesus has a similar mission which makes Him the Lord of the Sabbath. One who is authorized to decide when Sabbath regulations must be set aside to fulfill a greater divine purpose. But so steeply entrenched in their traditions, the religious leaders had lost the fundamental understandings of God. When Jesus rebukes the religious leaders there in Jerusalem just before his crucifixion, in the rebuke of the religious leaders, Jesus says something interesting. He says, you have forgotten that God loves mercy. He is a compassionate God. He likes good faith in Him. Meaning that they had so distorted the simplicity of a relationship with God through their traditions, man could no longer interact with God as God desired to interact with him. I like what one wrote. He says, this is exactly what many people steeped in tradition do. They simply cannot accept these three facts. Number one, they do not believe that what God really wants is mercy before sacrifice. Hosea 6.6 They don't believe that the love of others is more important than religious rituals. Isaiah 58.1-9 They don't believe that the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit a contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. Psalm 51, 17. This was God's intention from the very beginning. But again, man took the simplicity in which God put forward and complicated it to the point where we didn't recognize it any longer. Doesn't man love to do that to whatever he or she gets his hand, her hands on? You know, we often make it so complex so we can justify our evil nature. Where we can get away with things, finding loopholes through the law. You know, once a new tax law is put forward here in the United States of America, attorneys across our country go through that law, not to truly understand it, but to look for any loopholes that they may provide for their clientele. It's the same thing with accountants as we all prepare our taxes this year. You know, individuals will look for loopholes often created by the complexity of the process in and of itself. You know, a simple process is very hard to cheat. A complex process is much easier to cheat in so many ways. However, though, when the religious leaders set these traditions in place, it snowballed because they set precedent on top of precedent on top of precedent to where at the point they couldn't even fulfill the things that they had established and laid down. And of course, in it all, they lost all sight of love and compassion for people. 
to show mercy, you know, to show that people and love are more important than religious rituals that are laid down by man's traditions. And Jesus came to restore all of the truth of who God is and what God desires for us. Well, if that wasn't enough, we come to a second Sabbath. And once again, Jesus is on parade. He is there in the synagogue, which he often did, and he is teaching the people. And as he is teaching the people, it appears that there is a man in the crowd who has a withered right hand. Luke specifically talks about the right hand, which mainly means that the most basic functions that we take for granted, he probably wasn't able to complete. That it was a real detriment to his life. We don't know how the hand was withered. The word withered there in the Greek can mean paralyzed. It can mean disfigured. It can mean where it's weak and unusable in some way. And so this man is now in the congregation that Jesus is teaching. And instead of listening to what the Lord is saying, the religious leaders in attendance there are watching the man who has the withered hand. Not that they care about him. Not that they desire that God do something miraculous for this man with the withered hand. But to see if Jesus once again is going to violate their religious traditions. And so we pick it up in verse 6. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. Isn't that amazing? The religious leaders are there. The God of all the universe is teaching there in the synagogue. I don't know about you, but I'd like to have heard that, don't you? I wonder what he would have said. But they don't even care. They don't appear to be listening at all. They want to see if they're going to be given an opportunity to accuse him even further, to try to discredit him even in a more greater fashion amongst the people. They don't care about the man with the withered hand whatsoever. One of the aspects of reading a passage like this that we cannot identify with is understanding that this man coming to Jesus in this particular setting was a true act of courageous heroism. A man with a withered hand would have been scoffed in that society Reason being is that they would not know if that withered hand is caused by some birth defect of some sort or if it is a stage of leprosy. And so he would be shunned by the populace either way. They wouldn't take the time to find out. They would just stay clear of this man. So he probably was ostracized in many ways amongst that society. For him to show up there, he was incredibly brave. It's in it's unbelievable to me that he wasn't asked to leave the synagogue due to the fact that they just didn't know what was wrong with his hand. That has led some to believe that the religious leaders planted him there to set up Jesus. And it is conjecture, that is speculation. I'll let you chew on that. 
However, though, he is there. And obviously, we see from the text that they are now waiting to see what Jesus is about to do. Not listening to what Jesus has to say, but more critical that their personal authority and the traditions in which they have laid down are not being observed by this young itinerant preacher from Nazareth. And so Jesus, if you pick it up with me here in verse 8, but he, that is Jesus, knew their thoughts. That's a scary thing to consider. That God knows the thoughts of our heart, our mind and the intentions of our hearts even more in detail than we do. When you go back to the book of Ezekiel, there's a very troubling passage in the book of Ezekiel where God takes the prophet Ezekiel and he says, now Ezekiel, I want you, he brings him to this wall and he says, I want you to start digging through the wall. And Ezekiel says, okay, and starts digging through the wall. And as he is making his way through the wall, he finally comes through the wall into this chamber. And inside this chamber was every kind of wickedness that you could imagine, from pornography to hatred to anger to murder. And Ezekiel's hiding his eyes and he's, he starts to run from it. He says, oh Lord, oh Lord, why would you subject me to such a thing? Why would you have me look upon such a thing? What does this mean, Lord? And God said to Ezekiel, Ezekiel, I have just shown you the minds of the priests of Jerusalem. This is what's in their mind. This is what's in their hearts. Oh, that scares me, doesn't it? It should scare you. It should cause you to think that all things are open and naked before him, that we are an open book, that we can justify our actions, but God sees our hearts and our minds. And yet through it all, through Christ, he can extend us grace. And where sin abounds, grace abounds even further. There's only one response to that, is, and that is, oh, thank you, Lord, for your wonderful grace and mercy. Because the sin that I carry with me has been paid for at the cross. Past, present, and future, all have been paid, laid on the shoulders of Jesus Christ. And now I can have intimate fellowship with God the Father through Christ, positionally and practically, even though I am still a work in progress. We may not see what's going on in your mind and your heart, but God does. You know, one of the things I'll never get used to as a pastor is when I can see that one of our members here is troubled, they have something weighing on their heart, they basically crawled in through the front doors of the church, and I go up to them and I say, how are you doing? And they look at me and they say, I'm fine. I said, okay, God, you got to deal with this one. They won't won't admit it. They're not fine. They're not fine. You know, we're lying to ourselves if we think that sometimes. But God saw the thoughts of of the Pharisees there. 
And he said to the man with the withered hand, I love this, come here and stand here. Okay, you want a reason to accuse me? Guess what? I'm going to give you a reason to accuse me. You can accuse me of the good that I am about to do. And then he goes on to say, And he rose, that is the man with the withered hand, stood there, and Jesus said to them, I asked you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save a life or to destroy it? What is the real purpose of the Sabbath? If I have the opportunity to do something good on the Sabbath, should I not do that good? Isn't that what the Sabbath was created for? Remember, the heart of God from the very beginning was stated to the Jewish people very clearly in the establishment of the Old Testament Mosaic Law. And Jesus brings that back to their attention because of this distortion of all the rules and regulations and the corruption of the religious leaders. He says, what's the heart of it all? And one says, to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he goes, he says, to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, are you going to accuse me for doing good? If I were to save a life... Should I not save a life or should that life be destroyed? They were already wrestling at this time with the idea of what happens to one of your farm animals if it runs into a fence and gets caught up in the fence or if it uh, falls into a pit, should you go in and get it? That's why Jesus uses those exact words because they were already wrestling with this idea. And Jesus says, now is it wrong for me to do what I'm about to do? Medical attention could only be given in certain applications on the Sabbath. It could be given when a child was about to be born. It could be given when a life was in peril. It could be given when it was necessary concerning uh, the circumcision or the separation of one who has leprosy. But it was highly restricted. And so Jesus healing this man did not fall under any of those categories, but Jesus says, have I not still done good on the Sabbath? And look what he says. And after looking around at them all, he said to him, stretch out your hand. I like the fact that Jesus looked all the religious leaders in the eye. Really? So you say what I'm about to do is wrong. Watch this. It was not pride on Jesus' part. It was his authority, his sovereignty that he was exercising these things from. It was him establishing himself as the Lord of the Sabbath. It was him reestablishing for the people the heart and the love and the mercy and the compassion of God towards people. It was him once again bringing people to the true realization of who God is. And this man who came in broken, this man whose life was greatly diminished by the withered hand that he had, was healed in a moment. And as Jesus gives him the command, he did so, and his hand was restored. Anytime the Lord gives us a command, He'll always give us the ability to fulfill what He has commanded us to do. 
And he did so. His hand was restored. But they were filled with fury. They were mad beyond madness, is what the Greek word means. This was the event that took them to a place that they would then begin to plot the final demise of Jesus that would culminate in the cross. This was it. This was the last show of disrespect to them that they were going to tolerate. Now it was game on. We are going to do whatever we can do to silence this man. That's what Matthew and Mark tells us at this point. And they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. One wrote, he said, that Jesus uttered the phrase, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. The phrase brings two primary points into focus. Number one, the Sabbath regulations and interpreted by the Pharisees had lost the intent, intent of the Sabbaths prescribed in the Old Testament. Therefore, the rules they observed were human-made, not God-made, and were able to be broken. The Sabbath proclaimed at creation was intended to serve mankind as a holy day, giving a blessing and observing God's rest and restoration. Today, many Christians struggle with the understanding of the Sabbath, and many churches have gone to Sabbath services in desire to respect the Sabbath day. These believers are called Sabbatarians, and they worship on Saturday rather than on Sunday morning. Now, we believe here at Calvary Chapel that Jesus Christ fulfilled everything that the Sabbath had to offer, and now we rest in Him. I'll read a portion of Scripture that outlines that for us in just a moment. Why do we worship on Sunday? Because that's when the disciples did. For Jesus rose on the first day of the week, Sunday, and from that point on, it was Sunday that the disciples, the followers of Jesus Christ, uh, worshipped the Lord. No longer were they, are they waiting to the end of the week to worship God. They begin their week by worshiping the Lord and remembering specifically the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I think it's appropriate to understand the new covenant at this moment that the old covenant ended with the Sabbath, the hope of the day of rest, but now that rest has been provided for us in Jesus Christ. And now that it's been provided for us, we can cease from our labors. As Jesus stated when he said in Matthew eleven twenty-eight through 30, when he says, Come to me, all who labor under heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, Jesus said this at a very interesting time, if I may close with this. When the individuals came at Passover to give their sacrifice unto the Lord, there would be huge lines waiting to give their sacrifices over to the priest, the priest then to slaughter them, and then the people would get a remaining portion for themselves. Jesus appears to have said this as he was looking at that line. 
This is all that you had to do. All the laborious work you had to do to remain proper in the covenant under Moses. Come to me. And in the covenant that I'm establishing, I'll give you rest and the burden that I place upon you is light. For if you will believe in me by faith, you shall have eternal life. That's what Jesus came to offer. There's no need for us to recognize the Sabbath any longer for that's exactly what Paul wrote. He says in Colossians 2, 16 and 17, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to festivals or new moons or Sabbaths. These are shadows of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. This has been substantiated in Jesus Christ. I'm also concerned with individuals who have begun to practice Lent once again in evangelical Christian circles. Lent was established in the third century. It has nothing biblically based within it. And often Lent is used as a time to forgo something to remember the sufferings of Jesus Christ. One young lady on YouTube says that she personally would cease during the Lent period, an evangelical Christian believer, soda pop so she could remember every time she wanted soda pop the sufferings of Jesus Christ. I'm sorry, but with all due respect, resisting soda pop has nothing to do with the sufferings of Jesus Christ. Let us not diminish the sufferings of Jesus Christ and to think that they can be paralleled or realized or remembered in the absence of soda pop. In all due respect, these things aren't needed by a believer in Jesus Christ who's walking and abiding with God. I don't need these practices uh, when I am close and in an intimate fellowship with the Lord. I remember the sufferings of Jesus Christ each and every time I take communion. I can't watch the passion of the Christ without getting violently sick to my stomach knowing that Jesus Christ did that for me. Let us understand that these practices do not bring about righteousness. An individual who observes Lent is no more righteous than you and I who don't. Our righteousness is not provided by what we do, but what Jesus Christ has done for us. And therefore, there isn't any further righteousness that I could find. If he's clothed me in his perfection, where do I go from there? Is his perfection lacking in any way, shape, or form? Not at all. I'm also gravely concerned about the number of churches, even in our area, that have moved into what is called the Hebrew Roots Movement, where they have adopted Hebrew practices under, that were prescribed under the Old Covenant and brought them into the New Covenant for practices of piety, like remembering the Sabbath and other things. When, again, Paul made it abundantly clear that these things were just shadows leading to the substance, which is the person of Jesus Christ. Again, when you understand that, you have no need for these extra biblical events or practices or traditions because you understand who Jesus Christ is. Let's close by reading Hebrews 4, 3 through 11 together, if you will. Turn there in your Bibles. And I leave you with these words this morning. Hebrews chapter 4, 
verses 3 through 11. We don't know who the writer of Hebrews is. I lean to Paul the Apostle. And he is writing to Jewish believers in Jesus Christ who are considering going back to Judaism because they are being persecuted for their Christian faith. But notice what he says here in verse 3 of chapter 4. For we who have believed enter that rest. The Jewish people were continuously seeking the rest in which God promised to provide. And Paul writes, I believe, to the Jewish individual that we have entered that rest in the person of Jesus Christ. As he says, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all of his works. And again, in this passage, he says, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter in it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter in it because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David, So long afterwards, that in the words already quoted, today, if you will hear his voice and do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, that is, given them rest when they came into the promised land, they believed that that was the fulfillment of the rest that God spoke about, coming into their own land. God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. As individuals who have entered into the rest that Christ provides, I am not working to save myself any longer. I am not going through the Mosaic law. I'm not going through the sacrifice, the, the, the uh, ceremonial laws, etc. I am now resting in the final work of Jesus Christ. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that we, that no one may fall by the same sword of disobedience. And that disobedience was this. They did not believe in who Jesus Christ was. I'm so thankful for the rest that God gives us. And in that rest, we enjoy His peace, His joy, His grace, His love, His mercy. In that rest, we are given a new freedom in Christ to worship God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love Him with everything that we are. Showing that love to our neighbors and to demonstrate that love to others, knowing that we have been radically changed by the love of God, now we can show others that same love in hopes that they will come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. As we get closer to Resurrection Sunday, let us never forget the rest that Jesus provided. He satisfied everything that the Sabbath promised. And if you will believe, you will enter into that rest in Him.